The man known by many in the streets of Cremona or the poor houses went by the name of Omobono, or Goodman. As he crossed the Piazza del Comune, he stopped to give a coin to a beggar, huddled in a corner, and continued on to his destination. He was visiting a family that had fallen on hard times and were in dire need of help, help that he could give them. Omobono Tuchengi was a tailor and fabric merchant who lived in Cremona in the 12th century. His whole life he had felt compassion for those less fortunate and a need to make a difference in the world in which he found himself. More days than not, you could find Omobono distributing alms from his seemingly bottomless purse to the poor and needy of Cremona, helping all those who crossed his path. Over time, Omobono's need to help others did not diminish, quite the opposite in fact, and in his 50s, he decided to stop his trade altogether to dedicate himself to good works. The only fly in the ointment appears to have been his family. His wife and children were not too keen on their father and husband giving away the family fortune to apparently random strangers he found on the street. But this did not deter him as he continued on helping those in need, giving money from his purse that was always full of coins and never emptied by divine providence, and attending Mass every evening. One of these evenings, in the church of St. Egidio, on a cool November night, he sang Gloria for the last time, crossed his arms over his chest and fell to the ground. At first, no one noticed the devout Omobono, but when the time came for him to read the Gospels and he did not come forward, his fellow churchgoers approached to find him dead. The citizens of Cremona immediately venerated him as a saint, and Sicardo, Bishop of Cremona, personally went to Rome to represent the cause and canonization of Omobono. He wrote in his article, At that time, a simple, very faithful and devoted man lived in Cremona, who was called Omobono. In his death and with his intercession, God performed many miracles. Pope Innocent III, satisfied with the official investigation into his life and miracles, canonized Omobonos just after two years in 1199. That's pretty quick if you were wondering. And this is the story of the life of St. Omobono, who is not only the patron saint of Cremona, but also the patron saint of merchants, textile workers, tailors, business people, and entrepreneurs. Some might say that the real miracle here is that Omobono was an honest businessman, but he is also remarkable in that he was the first person canonized despite being both a layman, not in religious orders, and a father of a family. He was neither a martyr nor a king. And speaking of Omobono, there is a podcast for violin makers or violin enthusiasts, if you would like to discover it, called Simply Omo. You really should check it out. That podcast is named after one of Antonio Stradivari's sons, Omobono, who was probably named after this Omobono. But now on with the podcast.
and welcome to The Violin Chronicles, a podcast in which I, Linda Lesbe, will attempt to bring to life the story surrounding famous, infamous, or just not very well known, but interesting violin makers of history. I'm a violin maker and restorer. I graduated from the French Violin Making School some years ago now, and I currently live and work in Sydney with my husband, Antoine, who is also a violin maker and graduate of the French school, l'École Nationale de Lutherie in Mircourt. As well as being a luthier, I've always been intrigued with the history of instruments I work with, and in particular, the lives of those who made them. So often when we look back at history, I know that I have a tendency to look at just one aspect, but here my aim is to join up the puzzle pieces and have a look at an altogether fascinating picture. So join me as I wade through tales not only of fame, famine and war, but also of love, artistic genius, revolutionary craftsmanship, determination, cunning and bravery that all have their part to play in the history of the violin. Niccolo Amati was born in 1596, into a country ravaged by famine and disease on one hand, but on the other it existed in the midst of artistic endeavour, exploration and invention. Cremona, the city Niccolo was born into, was not an out-of-the-way sleepy village. It was a crossroads literally for traffic and ideas from across Europe filled with merchants and artisans. Take, for example, the case of Sophie Nisba Anguissola, a Cremonese girl who was one of five sisters, all accomplished artists. Having been schooled in the Cremonese fashion, she was taken to the Spanish royal court to paint portraits and led a fascinating life, worthy of an episode in itself. The question to this day remains as to whether she painted the famed Charles IX instruments made by Nicholas's grandfather. During this time, and in Cremona as well, musically there was instrumental music bursting forth such as the canzona, the ricchiare, the fantasia and dance-inspired compositions quite different to vocal music. In France there was ballet and in Italy opera. Music was an essential part of civic, religious and courtly life in the Renaissance and Cremona was no different. In Casa Amati Niccolo was a middle child, born into a sea of children, about ten. He was probably number six. His oldest brother, Roberto, joined the army, and his second eldest brother became a priest. He had six sisters, and his youngest brother died presumably as a child, leaving Niccolo the only son to carry on the family business. Niccolo Amati would become the godfather of the modern-day violin. He would have attended the local parish school until the age of about 12, and then in 1610, when he was about 14 years old and truly starting his apprenticeship with his father, news came that his uncle, Antonio, had died. Niccolo's father and his brother used to have a workshop together that they had inherited from their father, but before Niccolo was born, the brothers had had a disagreement and split the shop, each brother going his own way. They may not have been particularly close, especially if the rift between the two brothers was still a thing, but perhaps 22 years on, Girolamo and his brother may have patched things up, especially as they were still both living in the same street. Moving on four years, a sad event affected the Amati household once again. The 18-year-old Niccolo and his family received the news of an accident on the Po River near Vigivano, 
Roberto, his older brother, was killed in an exercise during his military service. Nicola would have felt the responsibility to continue helping his father even more now that there was one less brother to help out. In 1616, the Amati workshop with Girolamo and Nicola working produced two five-stringed cellos. Nicola was about 20 at this time, so we can easily imagine him helping his father with these instruments. 353 years after they were made, in 1969, they were acquired by the Fleming family in England, and today one of these cellos is played in the Australian Chamber Orchestra. I spoke to Timo Veco Valve, principal cellist in the Australian Chamber Orchestra, about this instrument and what it's like for him playing on it. My name is Timo Veco Valve, and I'm the principal cello of the Australian Chamber Orchestra. I've been in that role for the past 16 years, and I come from Finland originally, but uh, but I guess um, Sydney and Australia is now my home. So at the moment I'm playing a 1616 Brothers Amati cello, which I have had the privilege of playing for the past five or six years. And uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a very lucky owner of this quite quite special cello um, in many ways. Um, I, I used to play a Joseph Filius Guarneri cello before that, which I thought was the ideal cello. And in some ways, still I think it is. It's a very, I guess, softly spoken and chamber music kind of, um, has a character of chamber music in, in its kind of uh, personality. Whereas the Amati is, uh, is a more robust and more um, assertive and actually can be quite loud. Okay. So, um, so, yeah. So when I joined the orchestra in 2007, one of the first things that I was asked to do is to go cello shopping. So I found the Guarneri for myself. And uh, so it was my... Not bad. No, it was, it was really amazing experience actually to kind of go into that world, which I obviously hadn't visited before, you know, going instrument shopping of that level in London. And yeah, funnily enough, the first instrument that I saw on that trip was the Gordonary. It was a bit of love at first sight. But I mean, there were a lot of lot of other instruments that we tried on that trip, you know, um, Stradivarius, uh, Montagnana. So like really top end cellos um, worth much more than what the Guarneri is actually worth, but uh, but still somehow it's just you know it sounded like me. So anyway, that, that was my that was my first relationship for ten years, <laughs> and and, uh, and now now I'm um, now I'm enjoying life with the Amati. Originally, it was built as a five-string cello. It was modified into a normal conventional four-string cello in in the mid 1900s. It was previously owned by a British, rather famous cellist called Amarose Fleming. Well, she was, um, I guess, a superstar of the of the time. So she owned a Stradivarius, a Guarneri, and two Brothers Amatis. And both of those Brothers Amatis were actually five-string cellos. I've met the other one, which still today remains as a, as a five-string cello. 
uh, in its original uncut form, which is you know, amazing. So it's a, a type of cello that was more common during that time. Nowadays, it doesn't really have a, it, it doesn't get played often. I mean, there's a very limited kind of Baroque repertoire that utilizes a five-string cello, but um, unfortunately, that's why a lot of those five-string cellos have been converted into conventional four-string cellos. Um, Easier to sell. Easier to sell, yeah. So that's what happened with this one. But what I think is also quite amazing about this particular, my cello is that, and perhaps this is because it was a five-string cello, so it wasn't played so often after it was built. It was, I don't know, or perhaps it has sat in a collection somewhere for, for a long time. But I think in the in the certificate, they describe it as an unprecedented amount of original varnish. So if you look at the cello, it looks actually, it has a bit of wear and tear, but it looks relatively healthy and new, you know, given that it's been built around 1616. To have so much of original varnish, especially in the back, yeah. um, is quite amazing. Yeah, because it's... Quite right. I remember the first time it was in the workshop, yeah. and you, but it was just the instrument and I walked in and I was just like, ooh, what's that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and all the time I was like, oh, that's tippy. So like, like, it's quite striking. Like, yeah. it's, like you kind of stop and look at it. Yeah. There's another element. I mean, I guess, so like a lot of, lot of instruments, they would have been cut down. Mm-hmm. And uh, this one was cut down as well at some point. I guess there's no concrete date for this particular instrument. But the dendrochronology says that um, that the latest are from 1612. But they can also say, based on that research, that well, the same same wood from the same tree was used in other Brothers Amati instruments, another viola and another cello. So there's there's um, kind of a concrete link. Yeah, which is quite fascinating that they can do that. Yes. Yeah, yeah it's cool dendrochronology. Yeah. And it has it has double perfling, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which, which I guess is, as far as I know, is not normal for an Amati instrument. But that would have been added when it was re-etched. Someone someone said that it's probably been done to kind of give a visual kind of distraction. Distraction of the. I mean, the edging work is perfect. Like you, you can't really see anything. It's there are, you really have to look in. You can see a couple of spots uh, where you can see seams, but it's done so well. So yeah, I don't know, it's probably just a trick of an eye. When the instrument was introduced to us about six years ago, I wasn't particularly looking for another instrument because I was, you know, I was in a very happy relationship with the old one. Then the orchestra decided, oh, it's, you know, it's a, it's a great opportunity, let's just go for it. Purchased it without a clear view who would play it. And, but it came quite obvious, relatively kind of naturally that it's a cello that kind of needs to sit in the principal cello role or the principal cello seat kind of has the ability to well as a soloist or as a leader to kind of rise above just in kind of power rise above the orchestra if needed i really enjoyed the the collaboration with the guarnieri it kind of it taught me so much about what's possible what's actually possible on a cello but on the other hand that particular cello was very moody it was very fickle at times it it, it would come unglued a lot yeah <laughs> i remember it, that. It, it would it would yeah it would it would react to the environment a lot it's quite so, sensitive yeah it? so for traveling it would it, it would have a lot of bad days and 
And then I would have good days as well. Once I met the Amati, things are really easy with this, like, and I can just trust it and kind of let it go. It's kind of almost doing all the hard work for me. So that was also, that was obviously um, an aspect that was, was um, kind of appealing. It's a colleague that kind of is making my life very easy at the moment. You know, it's just allowing me to do, I guess, even more things because certain things are just, just easier. And it, it might be just a, that physically I have to do less because the power of the, the natural power of the instrument is so generous. Just play it lightly. Let yeah. it happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you've got, like you were saying, there's your personality, your role in the orchestra, mm. the, the instrument's personality. Yeah. And then, and then how your instrument fits in with the other instruments. That's right. There's all these relationships exactly. happening. Yeah. And the bow as well, that's another. Absolutely, yeah. You know, it definitely, ha- there has to be a, like it, it, it's so obvious if there's no link between the player and the instrument, regardless of what it is, if it's, you know, the best strat in the world, if there's no chemistry, you can't force them to be friends. Mm-hmm. So and it's, it's almost instant. Like you can, sometimes when we try instruments, you, can, you just know directly that, you know, this particular violin that Heli picks up, it just, wouldn't fit her at all and then it would be fine you know played by Richard or something else or someone else but yeah so it's definitely I think it's very important that the instruments are that you forge a relationship with the instrument yourself and find a kind of a comfortable place with the instrument and because it's your it really is your partner in crime so yeah I think we you know we're obviously very lucky to have all these instruments and kind of being able to go about it in that way that we we're not someone just buys a instrument X and then gives it to the orchestra and says here you have to play this. Sometimes it happens like that but often it's us looking for the perfect instrument for the player for the organization for the you know with the sound of the group in mind and um, kind of the sort of values that we want to emphasize. You're auditioning uh, a new housemate. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Uh, and and it's not like this is an orchestra where there's like one amazing instrument. Well, not anymore, no. Yeah. And that it's like you've got all these. Yeah, it happened. It happened actually relatively quickly. I mean, it used to kind of be like that. It's yeah. it's it obviously has to start from somewhere. The first instrument was a Guadagnini violin and. And that just opened the the gates, and and relatively soon after that, it became this thing in Australia that you know just people wanted to support arts in this particular way and buying instruments. So going from one instrument to what I think at the moment we're seeing it about ten instruments all happened in relatively small uh, time span, which is amazing. Yeah. Exciting. And oh yeah, you've got the new Strad as well. There's a new violin in the family as well, yeah, which is which is good. So I was wondering this so this instrument, mm. uh, what's it like playing um, music that if you compared like say you're playing on a modern instrument Bach, for example, mm. or then you're playing Bach on an instrument that's written yeah. like the time that it was made. Do you think it it um, adds something to I, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question, especially because, you know, in its original form, this cello, when it had five strings, one of the most prolific things that the five-string cello was meant for, or what it had in, in its repertoire, was the sixth suite by Bach. That would have been probably the biggest single work that that five-string cello would play. Or kind of, it's interesting to kind of think that, you know, 
that's probably the music that's been most played on that cello. And also that, that when Bach wrote the cello suites, this cello would have already been 120 years old. It would have been an instrument that inspired Bach to write the music. Maybe it even met him at some point, who knows. And do you set it up with gut string? I do sometimes, yeah. How does that it, go? It, well, yeah, I think, I think all cellos love that, love to have gut on. At least I've kind of felt that every time I, with different cellos, if I put gut on, I can kind of feel that they, they feel, the instrument feels happy, like they, they're relaxed and often, often I feel that they just open up much more than what they would be in, in a kind of a more modern tight setup. What I've found that even if you do it occasionally, it kind of, it just, it just gives the cello a bit of a holiday. And, and, and when, then when you go back to the modern setup, it's it still kind of, the cello still feels refreshed and kind of I um, encourage people to, to do that. Um, even if you don't want to play gut strings all the time or repertoire that you would play on gut strings all the time, it's really interesting to just try it and, and give your instrument a holiday for a, for a couple of weeks. A spa. Yeah. <laughs> a gut spa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a weird thought, but it's, it's it really, especially with the Gornari, I felt like the first time I did it, it's, I learned so much more about the instrument. Even though, you know, neck angles and that sort of thing would have been changed from how they were originally, it's still kind of, it still feels like that just with the changing the strings, you're kind of, you're time traveling with the cello into a place where it was previously like you know, just jumping back two or three hundred years and meeting that same cello uh, um, again so it's it, yeah it's interesting so you're going on a time traveling spa retreat yeah. with yes. your cello yes. this is perfect <laughs> i should write a book the time traveling cellist yeah well i mean actually another another interesting aspect of the cello is that of this particular cello is that so Amaryllis Fleming was half-sister of Ian Fleming, the famous James Bond author. So, so there's, um, I guess, literature and that sort of stories are kind of linked to this, this instrument. And I guess, you know, potentially, well, not even potentially, I think, you know, because she was uh, a cellist. And that, a secret agent. That, well, that inspired him, uh, Ian, to write, uh, I think it was, I don't remember what the movie is now, but but there's a, there's a couple of scenes where cello is uh, is in a main role, and I think even her name is mentioned. And Anyway. Yeah, there's always those player words. Yeah. Girolamo <laughs> <laughs> would have made your cello. Yeah. I guess I wanted to ask you that question. Maybe you know better, because so I find it weird that so Antonio kind of stopped his affiliation to the business quite early on. But still, the label says brothers for another almost forty years. Yeah, so he he sort of held back a bit, and yeah. then when his brother died, he like started using um, quite put the label everywhere. Right. But he was still actually using the label before, and people think it was more like a brand. Right. Even so, even though the instrument would have been solely made by. Anonymous. Yeah. yeah. So it's like when you've got like a company and it'll yeah, break like up, and, but they keep that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you keep you keep the label, and I personally think that maybe he just couldn't be bothered getting more labels printed. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. <laughs> so, be. I, so I always thought that you know that oh, I mean uh, that it it feels weird that he wouldn't want to then kind of I guess advertise himself as the you know the 
prolific main maker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't really know, but I, yeah, the main theory is that it was the the brand. It was quite successful. You yeah. Keep it that way. It would just be confusing if yeah. you changed that and people sense. were like, actually, I, I ordered a Brothers Amati instrument, not a what's, what's, what's this? Yeah, what's that horrible name that I can't pronounce? <laughs> <laughs> that keeps changing from yeah. Girolamo to Rana. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I didn't realize the Ian Fleming thing. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's a picture of her. I think that's that's the Strad that she's playing. But she, yeah, she had like I said, she has had Stradagonari and two Amatis. So. so they were like wealthy to begin with. And I, then... I think so. So she would have been prolific. Just like the height of her career would have been like between the wars, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess the market would have been a bit more different as well for instruments. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it says that she gave the. German premiere of the El Gacello Concerto, so mm-hmm. very kind of big stuff, and but then was was in a way um, shadowed by Jacqueline kind of stepping onto the scene, and at that point she felt like she needs to she needs to then do something else, you know. Now Jacqueline is the new cello soloist, and you know I guess there's only room for one, and she started to tour the circuit, and so Amaralis was getting less less soloist work than what she had before. One thing that she then decided to do is to look into the into the performance practice of the Bach suites in their original form. So that's that's probably why she actually acquired those two. Yeah, is that when, yeah that's when she bought those two cellos. I, I, I believe so, so that she would start performing the suites. I mean, they were, the suites were already obviously being played but mostly in a kind of a modern sense. And she was one of the first cellists that really looked into the uh, performance practice and started performing them with instruments that were yeah, more suited to them, you know, probably using gut strings, and then definitely for the sixth suite to use a five-string cello. That's, got, that's nice to be able to go, look, I'm going to do the back suite. I'm yeah. going to buy myself exactly. two cellos. Yeah, two Amatis, <laughs> please. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 quite it's quite um it's like I don't I don't know if anyone today like a, a musician you know regardless of uh, regardless of how wealthy they may be I don't think anyone today would own a collection of instruments like a musician and she owned them outright they were hers I, I think so oh, the family you know so mm. so now often that, they're like lent no no I think there's a mention in that that family was wealthy. But yeah, the, the family did acquire all those instruments for her. And now subsequently they've been uh, maintained by this foundation. In the years following the order for these two cellos, the inhabitants of Cremona may not have realised the true state of affairs that were surrounding them. There was a delayed arrival in the Spanish silver from the Americas to the Spanish court, so Philip II stopped paying his people in Milan. Cremona made up part of the Duchy of Milan, and mucking up the market, they were in recession now, and then in 1627, the first signs of the dreaded plague started appearing in the countryside and in the larger cities. 
Nevertheless, as time passed, the Amati's business prospered and Niccolo enters his mid-twenties. He's living with his parents. His father, Girolamo, is in his late fifties. Some of his brothers and sisters are still at home and it is life as usual for the time being. Back in the workshop, instruments being produced clearly had Niccolo's hand in style, even though they are labelled with the Amati brothers label. Their craftsmanship can be seen to differ. Niccolo would make more elongated corners than his father and his archings were conceptually different, being progressively less scooped inside the edges. He was different to his father also in that he used maple with a pronounced flame and the wood was less slab cut on the maple. This type of wood is often seen on the brothers' Amati instruments. As Niccolo was the only son helping his father in the busy workshop, they enlisted the help of the two husbands of Niccolo's sisters, his brothers-in-law, Vincenzo and Domenico. We're not sure what they did exactly in the workshop, but Vincenzo was still working in the shop into the late 1620s when the lives of the Amatis would be changed forever. Carlo Chiesa, violin maker, expert and author living in Milan. And uh, at some point, uh, uh, Girolamo needed uh, also more people working with him. And since he had only one uh, male son, uh, but he had daughters, uh, he hired uh, the husbands of his daughters. Uh, Vincenzo Tilli and Domenico Moneghini. We know their names and we know that uh, they joined because at some point they split. <laughs> Nicola uh, again divorced his workshop with, uh, with his uh, brothers-in-law. And uh, so since there exist these uh, notarial documents in which they divide uh, the workshop or uh, one uh, sells uh, his partnership to the other, we know that they, before that they were working together. But this gives an, uh, as an idea of uh, how important the, uh, the business was. It was a business in which there were three people, uh, three serious, three partners. So after he split with his brothers-in-law, I imagine they stayed in the same street too. Mm, no, I'm not sure about that because... Uh, <laughs> they were all in the same street. Yeah, but but this this was uh, in the span. I'm I'm uh, I'm condensing a story that uh, comes out of a span of forty years, so it's not exactly. Okay. Uh, but uh, but I, I really we uh, uh, we are speaking of men like we are today. So of course they worked together side by side for years, and at some point possibly they say, "Come on, I go. Uh, that's it." <laughs> You want to be the owner, you keep it, but I go. Uh, I don't think we know exactly what uh, the husbands of uh, uh, the daughters uh, of Andrea uh, did. One of them was called Dei Cornetti, which probably means he was a musician. From the 1580s, things had begun to strain in Cremona. The cracks in the market could be seen to those who knew where to look. In the 1590s, with famine and economic downturn, it was a slippery slope. A series of setbacks and disasters had accumulated to create a crisis. Individually, they would have been overcome, but the one after the other was devastating to the economy. After the famine, there was a moleskin crisis, 
That was their textile industry. In the 1600s, there was a collapse of the wool guild, another of their city's biggest industries. There were more famines in the 1620s and then boom. In the 1630s, plague killed almost half its inhabitants. This came about with the War of the Mantuan Succession. This was the war that James Beck was talking about in the previous episode where everyone decided to invade Mantua after their duke died and there was a bit of a hoo-ha about who the duchy belonged to now. It was basically a war between the French and the Spanish about a highway. This ended up causing the spread of disease and wiping out almost half the population of the country in some areas. But this is a story for the next episode where we will see the disappearance of many violin makers, but also the beginning of something big in the history of the violin. Please do go ahead and follow the podcast and leave a comment or rating. I'm always delighted every time I hear from listeners and every rating and comment helps the podcast to happen. A big thank you to my guests, Carlo Chiesa and Timo Vicoval for joining me today. If you would like to support the podcast financially, that would be amazing. And you can head over to patreon.com forward slash the violin chronicles for that. There are bonus episodes I will be putting up on that platform also alongside all the current episodes. Also, if you would like to contact me, there is the violin chronicles at gmail.com. And I have Instagram with the handle the violin chronicles. That's where I put a lot of images from these episodes up. And I'll leave you now with Tippy playing his 1616 Amati Brothers cello. Thank you.